Explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Every two weeks we craft a double feature of films connected through one element or another. The only caveat, those films must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection, hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. My name is Ian and this is my lovely friend and co-host Mackenzie. Howdy! And this week we are connecting... Back to last week's film that we discussed on our previous episode, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. And later on in this episode, we will be discussing Spine Number 724, a Bob Fosse film, All That Jazz. Very excited to get to that. But before we do, Mackenzie, hello, how are you? What have you been up to lately? Tell us what you've been watching. Oh, I'm good. I realized I should have said Showtime, folks, Oops. instead of uh, Howdy. Um, <laughs> but um, we can do another take. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm okay. Um, I did say Howdy. Uh, also, I was trying to be cute because I also say Howdy on this week's Austin Danger podcast, where I talked about Asteroid City. Yes. Which uh, I won't go into detail here because you can go listen to the detail there. But. Um, spoiler alert i liked it a lot uh i know my dear friend ian liked it as well and so they may talk about it in just a few minutes um but yeah i watched that twice in theaters so that's a big part of what i watched this week um but the thing i do want to talk about the new thing i watched is last week we were talking about our todd haynes journeys and uh movie has been doing this like three by todd haynes where they have safe i'm not there and velvet goldmine uh all three, I can now say, amazing movies that I, I very much like. Um, and I recommend checking them out if you have a movie subscription. But I knew Velvet Goldmine was coming, and so I've been waiting for it. And then movie posted this clip on their social media account of... And I knew it was kind of like a... The only thing I knew about Velvet Goldmine is that it was like a faux David Bowie biopic. Because he couldn't actually make a David Bowie biopic, so he kind of just made his own like fanfic of a David Bowie biopic. Um that was really the only thing I knew about it. And then I hear this clip of Jonathan Reese Myers, who apparently did his own singing, sounding identical to Bowie and singing this really awesome song. And I was like, what? And it has like a sexy Ewan McGregor as a satyr. And I was like, what is happening in this clip? And I immediately told Rachel, I was like, we got to watch Velvet Goldmine immediately. Um, and we sat down last night and it blew our minds. I absolutely loved it. I, I, it's wild that the, I don't know. Just Todd Haynes' films are so different from one another in a way that is so fascinating to me. Because going from Safe to then something like Velvet Goldmine is, I could not think of a more like total one eighty shift in a type of style and story, really. But you know, Todd Haynes really loves music. I think that's been a thing, a thread through his whole career. I mean, his career started with his, you know, unauthorized biography of Karen Carpenter that he filmed with Barbie dolls. Um, and very recently before May, December, he did a documentary about the velvet underground. Uh, he loves Lou Reed. He loves that era. Lou Reed is a huge inspiration in velvet Goldmine as well, as well as Iggy pop, David Bowie, that whole era of bisexual glam rockers. And uh, yeah, this movie is just like a glittery bisexual extravaganza and uh, I just, I absolutely loved it. I, I, I love the way that Todd Haynes 
draws queer characters and queerness and Christian Bale is in this movie and gives a phenomenal performance like the year before he would go on to do American Psycho uh, and I was completely mesmerized and um, I absolutely adored his performance he plays this sort of I did not realize again I knew nothing about this going in the structure of it is apparently inspired by Citizen Kane where it's like a young reporter who's trying to discover more details about this totemic uh, mythical rock star this rock god uh brian slade and so he's going to the people in his life to try to learn more about him and uh so it has this sort of citizen kane-esque structure while also yeah through flashbacks telling the life of this this very clear david bowie reference and it also gets into the kind of tumultuous relationship that brian slade had with kurt wilde who is very obviously iggy pop played by you know mcgregor who is amazing in this movie Tony Collette, isn't it? I said no. recently on an episode of ADP, maybe one of those underrated actresses yes, ever. She's great I, in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's um, she's great. I just, I, I really love that. It. It's just uh, the filmmaking is gorgeous. I love David Bowie. I've loved him for a huge portion of my life. Um, I started listening to his music in in like early high school, and he was definitely a, an early queer artist who who really much changed my perception of what queerness could be. And you see that in the film. You see christian bale's character discovering what queerness can be through music and through artistry and through androgyny and through sexuality and bisexuality specifically and it's uh it's just really beautiful i don't know i loved it i i i thought it was great it's really funny because i thought it was like great but a lot of the reviews are like i love it even though it's completely muddled and messy i didn't feel like it was muddled and messy i i'm so i i'm able to lean into a kind of abstract way of non-linear storytelling i think more than maybe some people but so if you like non-linear abstract storytelling and men in tight androgynous outfits singing really great music then this movie's for you i'm so happy to hear you say all those things especially about the christian Bale performance <laughs> because i have checked this out from my local library i've had it sitting on my shelf for a good while and i feel like i've bought into the the negative takes on this film so i'm really happy to hear you say all that about the film i've never heard negative take. i literally have heard nothing about this movie I've, i mean i've read a <laughs> lot of reviews i typically do before i go into something i'm not against mm. being spoiled if something's good enough it doesn't matter if i'm spoiled or something um like that but yeah no i've read a lot of just middle of the road to negative takes on velvet goldmine so i'm really happy mm. to hear that you liked it i'm even more excited to check it out now that DVD's due back soon, so I've got to. I've got to watch it. You've got to watch it. I definitely think it was misunderstood upon its release. I was reading a lot about I me mean, Roger Ebert didn't like it. A lot of huge named um, reviewers and critics did not enjoy this film when it came out. It was pretty much ignored from the by the Academy and at every award circuit outside of the costume design, which is phenomenal. The costumes are just uh, mind-blowingly brilliant. And a lot of them are really... Uh, exact recreations of famous looks you'll recognize from david bowie's career um but i don't know i think it's really great there was some amazing quote i found of todd haynes saying how um he he thinks that it didn't find its audience when it came out but it's become a cult favorite he's like now kids and young teens are finding this movie and they love it and he's like i think i just missed them the first time around and i think that they have it now and i'm glad that they do and so todd haynes seems to have a really lovely point of view on kind of the growth of the love of the film that's happened uh amongst i think probably the gen zers are finding it the millennial the young millennials and gen zers are 
are finding Velvet Goldmine and love it. So I don't know. I dug it a ton. I think I have two more Todd Haynes features and then I'll be ready for May, December. Which is a very exciting thing to look forward to in this day and age. (laughs) I'm so pumped. Ian, what did you watch this week? This week was a week of rewatches, Mackenzie. Partly like in preparation for Asteroid City, I started rewatching West films. And then also after that, I got so obsessed with rewatching West films a filmmaker who kind of introduced, I think, you and I to like what films could truly like be and opened up, us up to a whole new world of like cinephilia. Um, so I've been really loving going back and revisiting a lot of West films. I just watched Grand Budapest and Royal Tenenbaums, two of my favorites. Um, and I also watched Darjeeling Unlimited. Uh, sorry, Darjeeling Limited, uh, not Unlimited. Um, <laughs> Unlimited. <laughs> so a superhero like a, Wes Anderson franchise. Yeah, like uh, a fr- Fast and Furious movie. Darjeeling <laughs> um, Unlimited. Yeah, that was all uh, surrounding Asteroid City, which I fervently loved. Um, you and I have been yeah. in each other's DMs back and forth all week, just getting <laughs> so pissed off about the surface versus substance Wes Anderson debate. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it a lot. I can't wait to go see it again for a second time and then listen to you talk about it with Kev over on ADP. Everybody go listen. Um, but aside from that, I started a little journey called Road to Barbie. Um, and I'm just rewatching <gasps> a bunch of... Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> I am just going to rewatch a bunch of Greta starring and uh, directed and written uh, films. So I started with Lady Bird. It's only the second oh. time I've seen Lady Bird and it's just one of those movies where I'm like, why haven't I watched this a million times already? I watched it again. I cried so much. I put it in my four favorites immediately on Letterboxd. And I like mm-hmm. shot it up on my top 50 favorites of all time list to like the very top. I love that movie. That movie is brilliant. And just, I I just love Greta Gerwig like so much. And then we mm-hmm. also rewatched... Um, her and Noah Baumbach's follow-up to Francis Ha, which I plugged on the Francis Ha episode that we did, uh, Mistress America from 2015. It's her and her partner, Noah Baumbach, writing again, him directing, her starring, and it's kind of like Francis Ha on cocaine. Like, the script is phenomenal. There are so many one-liners that you'll just miss if you blink. Um <laughs> It's it's a really powerful and moving movie, and I, I love that one just as equally as much as I love Lady Bird, so um, I had a freaking great time with that. Um, and the last thing that I'll spotlight is I did get to go and see Past Lives, and now oh, yes. I've said a lot of good things. Everything I just uh, <laughs> talked about is five stars, and I don't really like to talk about things that I don't like, but I did not like this movie. <laughs> um And you kind of teased last week that we would talk about it briefly here. So we'll do that right now. You gave this movie four stars. I gave it a sad two. Wow. I definitely thought it was going to be your thing. I was was surprised to see that roll through. But I agree the hype train's very, I would say, intense for this film. Maybe too intense for for the level of good it is, personally, for me. A lot of people still are really digging it, though. Well, your fiance, she, she, uh, she apparently, she loved it, yeah. yeah, she loved it. Five stars. I she loved it a lot more than great. me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know that you, uh, saw somebody leaving the theater, just bawling their eyes out. I definitely <laughs> I saw a lot of sniffling. The, the, uh, person sitting right next to me in the theater was patting her eyes dry throughout the film. Um, 
I will say this was the first time I'd ever been to an Alamo draft house. And I know you went to one to see this as well. I mm-hmm. hated the experience of <gasps> really? the Alamo draft house. Nothing they did not to, sh- not to like call out Alamo draft house in Dallas, but um, <laughs> most dine-in theaters these days, when you go to them, you have like a 20 minute window before the film is fully underway to place your orders and get your food in and brought to you. The thing I don't like about these kinds of theaters, sorry to go on this tangent, this is probably really You're boring, fine, you're fine. Um, is you can continue to order food throughout the movie and it's really distracting. Um, when they're like, no interruptions, nobody can come in after the movie started. That's very strange that you can keep ordering because no one in my showing did for sure. I had a lot of it. And my theory is that they don't, they, they'll kick you out and they discourage greatly cell phone use and any kind of interruption so that they themselves can get away with interrupting your experience more often. Um, but oh, that's well. just my theory. Um, anyway, no, when it, when, it, when it comes to the film, it was definitely a victim of the hype train being way too big and, uh, you know, grandiose. But more than that, I just kind of, it's gonna sound so mean but i kind of felt it was just like a faint sigh of a movie it's just like Mm. it's just like a it was like that it was like what you just did (laughs) (laughs) but no i like for me personally uh it did not have any of that earth-shattering catharsis of films in recent memory like portrait of a lady on fire or to name another celine skiama film petite maman but it's also getting at a very different kind of thing and a very different experience to which i cannot relate so while i gave it two stars that is something i want to put a caveat on that is strictly just my opinion and uh the lens through which i see past lives through the experience that i have been through i have heard a lot of korean americans talk about how impactful and meaningful and representative this film has been and i love that for them I'm just a little podcaster and reviewer on Letterboxd. My opinion doesn't really hold any weight, but like, I just want to like be a voice on the internet. That's like, even though I didn't like it, there's a lot of artistry in this. This is a beautiful looking debut filmed on the streets of New York city. Cinematography is gorgeous. Um, and just, yeah, it's a really beautiful and moving film, just not for me. And I say all that to you right now on the air, because I didn't write anything in my review. Yeah. I'm not, I'm kind of taking a stance against writing negative things on Letterboxd um, <laughs> in my reviews. Like, I almost don't even want to give star ratings, but I, but yeah, I, I would like to know briefly before we move on to our feature event, like what you liked about it. I'm really keen to hear. I mean, it's funny. The more you talk about it, like I gave it four stars, but like, I don't know if anything's really sitting with me now. Like I'm two weeks out after seeing it and I'm like, I mean, yeah, I guess it's like, it's like, maybe that's a detriment to the film is like, I rated it high when I left that theater, but it's been a couple weeks and I have no idea how to answer that question you just asked, which is like, <laughs> uh oh. Um, I think I just thought it was like sweet and romantic and I enjoyed the performances about it. And I think I definitely don't like when it came out of was it Cannes that it premiered out? Was it Cannes? Sundance. I think it was a this was a Sundance star, yeah. And people were like, this is the greatest movie of the year. This is hands down. No movie's going to beat this movie for the best movie of the year. I think that is a little silly about this movie. I, it's 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 like a lovely little film. And I don't want to say that to, you know, talk down to the movie. But like, yeah, it's one of those movies where like not really anything happens. Like it's really just about these two people reconnecting and then disconnecting. 
that's pretty much it. And there's a lot of emotion packed into that. And there's a lot of nuance packed into that as their lives have changed and they've gone in these different directions. And I agree. There's a lot of cultural stuff that I think probably goes over our heads as Mm -hmm. white people. Um, But that's still, I still see and still think is resonant. Um, So yeah, I think I just liked it because I just had a good time seeing it, I guess. I just, I I was swept into the experience of the film when I was sitting there. Your partner was very emotional about it. My partner loved it. I I just, I, I don't know if I agree with it being like the objective, like, Hands down, no movies coming close. Best movie of the year for for me. That's Asteroid City right now for me personally. Yeah, me too. Um, but I still think it's a lovely movie. I don't. I now that I'm a couple weeks out of it, I'm like I don't know how much it's gonna like. I'm gonna be like really resonating with it by the end of the year. But I wouldn't be mad to see it get like some screenplay love or maybe some performance noms at the Oscars. Like I wouldn't be mad at all. Um, I think this seems like it's gonna be a two fours Oscar baby this year. They're coming off a big year, so I think they're going to push past lives, and yeah, I think it's I think it's fine, and I love pe- that people are loving it so much. I'm just really glad people are having these really emotional experiences with it, including my partner. I just I agree, it didn't quite cut to my core specifically. I also rate things higher than you generally. I think so. That's probably why I'm at four, uh, where it's more realistically maybe a three or a three and a half. Fair, fair enough. You know, at the end of the day, I really just felt like it felt like a debut feature from a playwright which is what it is um and that's not like a bad thing i i rated this two stars i mean somebody we're talking about right now wes anderson his debut feature is something i love a lot but i have it rated on letterboxd and i think it's objectively a three-star film sometimes (laughs) you're not fully formed and that's perfectly okay there are amazing filmmakers one that comes to top of the mind immediately is paul thomas anderson i think his debut Mm. part eight is a phenomenal feature but that's not really, you know, uh, the... I mean, not every not every debut can be the greatest debut of all time. Exactly. 1990s. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, while I, while I think that Celine Song probably has a very promising career ahead of her, I think maybe a lot of that might be, like, the festival fatigue of, like, seeing a lot mm. of mediocre films and then seeing something that's relatively good and being like, best film ever made. Um, <laughs> people get on festival highs too I think because they're yeah. just in a room with like really intense movie people and it just feels really good to be in those rooms I'm sure so yeah, yeah I think people get really on festival highs yeah but like I just I wanted more about the immigrant experience I wanted more about uh, these actual people a very a very good review was one from our, our friend Andy Stone who kind of said I just didn't feel like I got to spend enough time with these characters and have them develop mm. fully so I thought that was like a really reasonable and intelligent critique of the film not not saying it's bad or anything not like saying like this isn't worthy of the love because it's worthy of the love like we've said but anyway wow i am shocked to see this sitting at a 4.3 average on letterboxd it's number 162 in the top 250 mackenzie i want i want i want i want to i want to put myself up as an example i had to drive an hour to see this film so it is you know, sometimes scarcity might help it in that regard. See, yeah. Again, I almost hate to say that because I don't want to like, I don't want to shit on this film. I am trying to be very careful right now. I didn't like it <laughs> all that much at all, but I think it's a very, very uh, worthy of the love that people are giving it. So I'm happy for it. Um, time will tell, right? We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, uh, anyway, I mean, Mackenzie, we don't have any new additions to the collection this week. No, uh, no, nothing new on the channel. Uh, so Mackenzie, why don't you go ahead and bring us into the world of Fosse 
and uh, Joe Gideon. One, two, three, four. One, two. Preternaturally gifted director and choreographer Bob Fosse turned the camera on his own life for this madly imaginative, self-excoriating musical masterpiece. Roy Scheider gives the performance of his career as Joe Gideon, whose exhausting work schedule, mounting a Broadway production by day and editing his latest movie by night, and a routine of amphetamines, booze, and sex are putting his health at serious risk. Fosse burrows into Gideon's and his own mind, rendering his interior world as a phantasmagoric spectacle. Assembled with visionary editing that makes dance come alive on screen as never before, and overflowing with sublime footwork by the likes of Anne Ranking, Leland Palmer, and Ben Vereen, all that jazz pushes the musical genre to personal depths and virtuosic aesthetic heights. All that jazz. I wish I had. You like it? Well, it's all right. It's showtime, folks. Ian, I believe we both have seen this film before, but I am curious with what your history with watching this film was. If you have any history with Bob Fosse, even as a director or even just a choreographer, his work, his life. Yeah, me I background. mean, I, I saw it for the first time after we had started podcasting together and I talked about it not too long ago on the show. Um, my original review for this film was just, you know, spoiler to, you know, all the listeners who care about finding out what ian and mckenzie uh, rate films before the end of the show but i i just wrote uh my jaws on the floor and gave it five stars and a heart because this film is phenomenal um i don't think you know we've we've already logged our reviews as of today june 29th they're they're five stars you rewatched it twice um in preparation we both love this movie but uh before i came to it a couple weeks ago maybe like a month or two now um I'd only ever heard of Chicago and Cabaret, never seen Cabaret, and I'd seen snippets of the Marshall um, film for Chicago. It's one of my mom's favorite movies. Um, it came out in a time where I was starting to get aware of what the Oscars were and why they mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like one was of the first one. films. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge one. Um, but aside from that, no, I'm not really familiar with a lot of musical theater outside of Andrew Lloyd Webber because that's who my mom loved. Um, so when it comes to like Fosse and everything, we were having dinner last night, Frankie and I, and she said like, are you going to do the, this dance by Fosse? And I was like, what is that? She's like, that's a very famous Fosse, um, dance because Frankie is very familiar with the different eras of musical theater. Um, even if Fosse's not her favorite era she's more of a rogers and hammerstein gal herself Mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean like all that rambling to say not much of a history but i do love this movie and i'm very excited to talk about it with you but Mackenzie, as listeners of adp and the criterion connection will know you are a recovering theater kid (laughs) yeah (laughs) you went to college for this so tell us about your history with fossey like where you first came to him and maybe throughout the years a little bit 
Well, as we announced on ADP today, actually, Ooh. our number uh, our number seventy five episode, which is the movie I get to pick, any movie on the wheel, is actually going to be Rob Marshall's Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Yes, because that's one of my all time favorite films of all time. And so, ADP listeners, you get a sneak peek. When I was a kid, my great grandmother, I lived with my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, all th- four of us lived together under the same roof. Uh, my great-grandmother was uh, terminally ill and was kind of in hospice at home, but she was a rebel and she wanted to go and do stuff before she died. And I remember distinctly, she was like, peak, we're going to sneak out to the movies and we're going to go see a movie. And my great-grandmother, who I don't think legally should have been driving, <laughs> uh, took me to see Chicago. And that movie came out when I was six years old. So I was like fully, maybe five. I was really little and she took me to see Chicago and I probably, I don't remember anything about that showing. I just remember that we went uh, and then my grandmother was like, why did you take a five-year-old to see this movie? Um, but I loved Chicago a lot growing up and I listened to that music a lot when I was a kid because I just always loved that movie. That was just a movie that was always a film I adored. Um, and then when I got into musicals again kind of when I was in middle school I got really into Hairspray which is kind of my origin story with becoming a musical theater kid um I was really into a lot of things So You Think You Can Dance was my favorite tv show and they did a uh dance to Bye Bye Life and I remember being like what is this song this is so amazing uh and I was obsessed with the Bye Bye Life number and the Take Off With Us number I did not see the second half of Erotica I will say as a teenager but um, I did love the numbers in this music in this movie, and I had no idea what they were from. I just was like, I just really like these because I watched dances to them. And so I listened to the songs from all that jazz without knowing the source for a long time. But yeah, Fosse is definitely my era of musicals I love. I love Chicago. I love Pippin. Uh, Sweet Charity is another one I adore. Rich Man's Frug is probably one of his most famous and identifiable dances. Uh, or choreography pieces ever and it's such an amazing piece of choreography um i i like cabaret i got into cabaret more in college and we it was actually our we me and kev were talking it was our very first post austin powers film on adp so we watched that about a year and a half ago even um liza with a z liza minnelli's one woman show from the late 70s i think he choreographed i i i've loved to fossey for a long time but i only saw I think all that jazz as an adult a couple years ago and I don't remember what prompted me to seek it out but I agree it was one of those movies where like as soon as you see it you're like oh this is just one of the best movies ever made it's just so mind-blowingly the talent behind it the story is so interesting it's so bold what Fosse has done with his own image and his own sense of self and his own ego in this film in a way that is so interesting and uh god the last 30 minutes of this movie are just a masterpiece to me um so yeah i i love fossey i've i've been tangentially aware of him for a long time in my life um and only as an adult i think i've really dug into the director and the man um as opposed to just kind of knowing his name from things and that's kind of my history with fossey yeah i mean the man is plastered all over this film, even if it's Joe Gideon in name, which I think is really interesting. Um, especially, I think we'll talk about this a little bit more later when in comparison to Eight and a Half and Fellini and Guido, you know, the dichotomy between the fiction and the fact there, uh, the dichotomy between the fiction and the fact here and all that jazz is like, obviously, like, if not just extremely blurred, like almost non-existent, like... I think yes. the my favorite thing about all that jazz is just the scathing indictment of oneself. Like the way that he is able to just with 
huge mass appeal because this is like one of the most popular films of the 70s one of the most critically acclaimed uh famously it's stanley kubrick's like favorite film from that era at least of his like direct i think it was like his favorite film that was made after he became a director at Mm. least um which i think is very funny even especially when given that line in the film you know where joe gideon says do you think stanley kubrick ever gets depressed um (laughs) but yeah no i just think that this is such a unique film especially in comparison to our last covered film because like he's hitting on so many fundamental truths bob fossey is when it comes to like self-loathing um not just like self-deprecating like truly hatred of oneself and like Mm -hmm. deep spiraling depression that manifests in self-destructive patterns um like you know not i don't want to get too off course but like all that jazz i think expertly destroys self uh destructivity in a way that always seems contrived in so many tv shows and films especially in like contemporary times Mm -hmm. um i.e like the 70s to now but i just i think one of the most alluring and interesting things about all that jazz is like it's essentially just bob fossey realizing his own demise by showing the world what a piece of shit he is um and I've I've also been like digging more into Fosse since discovering him myself. Um, and just I don't really identify him with him all that much, but I identify with a lot of parts of him. Like mm. I think there's a very universal and human story in his story, even though he's such a shitbag. <laughs> he is a shit heel of a man. Um I actually did not watch Fosse Verda, but I heard it was very good. And I actually kinda wanna watch it now that I'm yeah, thinking about all that jazz again. Um, Because Rachel was saying a lot of the stuff in the film, especially like the, I would call it sexual abuse he suffered at the cabarets he was performing at as a child, like apparently is very, is like a, is talked about a lot, I think, in that series as like a, this is maybe part of why he is the way he is as, uh, you know, there's, I think everyone's lives are, we are all kind of built we are all like human beings are just kind of Frankenstein creatures of trauma. And it's just like, which pieces of trauma kind of inform the way we move through this world. And I think that Fosse is a great example of that. And he tries to show a little bit of it here. Uh, Yeah. I am always, every time I watch this, I'm just so impressed by how willing he is to go there about himself. Like how willing he is. Like I really do. It reads more than eight and a half, even as a man who like really genuinely was like, I'm at the end of my fucking life. Like I'm going to die like tomorrow. And I think that energy comes out and it's crazy that he lived eight more years after this film. (laughs) Uh, And also that he did not stop smoking. He kept smoking until I was watching an interview with um, that's on the the Blu-ray where it was about a year before he died. And and the the interviewer was like, are you going to stop smoking? He's like, no, (laughs) why would I do that? It's like, I mean, speaking as somebody who has been a smoker in their life, it's incredibly difficult to stop. I can only yeah. I can only imagine what it would be like if you'd been smoking since like you were eight years old and you were in yeah. your what forties? Was he like in his forties? Forties, fifties, probably. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um no, it's wild. I loved, loved, loved Rachel's review of this movie. Um, <laughs> I don't let me, let me find it. Something along let the me, lines of like, come on, man. Let me find it real quick. I have you're you and her are the only ones that like okay. Yeah, your fiance said, when it ended and the credits started rolling, starting with directed by Bob Fosse, I said, Jesus Christ, out loud. He didn't even stop smoking after this. Hey, man. Hey, my guy. 
Yeah. Um, like, yeah, he kind of seems like a man with a death wish, especially in the, the character even of Joe Gideon in the final part of this film. He wants to, he's like, yep, let's do this. I'm ready to die. But then when he gets close to it, he's like, oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. You know, and then he has to kind of work his way through those five stages of grief. But just to finish my thought, like, I just, I'm, I'm just really impressed by how willing he is to, to skewer himself and how willing he is to, like, even from the immediate top, like, the girls leaving the audition and being like, I fucked him and he never uses me. Him's in, like, oh, I lie all the time. Him, you know, picking up women in front of his daughter and his ex-wife. Like, he immediately, he does not pull punches on himself. And I respect the shit out of that. And the whole time I watched, and I want to say, oh, God, I have two different thoughts I want to go down. So I'm picking this one. I do think it's crazy. And I texted you this, how I still care about him. I still care about Joe. And, like, I'm still moved by his death. And in the final moments during Bye Bye Life, when he's hugging his daughter, and he's saying goodbye to his wife, his ex-wife. I am still so profoundly moved by that. And I still care about him as a character. And I do think it's that is a testament to Roy Scheider's transcendent performance as Joe Gideon. I cannot believe like, you watch an interview of Fosse that's on the Blu-ray and you're like, oh, my God, he just became him. Like he just completely was possessed by Bob Fosse. And I, and I, I think he, the way he inhabits this role is so brilliant. And I do think Roy Scheider's performance uh, is maybe one of the best I've ever seen in my life. And I do think it's a reason why all that jazz works so well for me is because he is so amazing in this role. Yeah. Now he's transcendent. When you, when you, when you realize that that's the same guy from Jaws. Um, it, <laughs> my it, boy. Yeah. Which is another favorite of yours. I know. Uh, yes. I, 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 it's, it's unbelievable. Um, what he's able to do because Roy Sch Schneider was known as like a kind of a man's man. He was known as like a gun at the hip side, uh, kind of like bad boy. And I think like he really, I mean, I don't think I know I've read about this. He really wanted to do something different and inhabit something that nobody had ever let him done before. Um, and this was supposed to be Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus at one point, which would have not worked at all. No. Um, but yeah, Fosse um, picking Schneider to play Gideon is just, I mean, one of the master strokes of casting and direction um, in all of like cinema history. Did you see the trivia where Fosse wanted to play it himself and uh, the producer was like, you won't survive playing this role because he was so sick already. Like he was already in such terrible shape that the producers were like, you might actually die if you try to play this role, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the 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 lore is that Fosse always wanted to be um, like Fred Astaire. Like he wanted to be a song and dance man in front of the camera as well as behind it. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, no, I think that's very, very interesting and humorous because, I mean, I don't think it would have worked because from all accounts, Fosse was a very um, even more uh, abrasive and uh, prickly than uh, Gideon yes. was. Um and also just, you know, for all of the ways that they try to make him look uh, ill and uh, knocking on death's door, Scheider's a very, very handsome man. Um, yes, he is. That's a beautiful yeah. man right there. Yeah. I want to correct myself. I've been saying Schneider. It's Scheider. Um, yes, yes, yes. Anyway. Um, but yeah, no. Touch, going back to what you were talking about with like, you know, loving Joe Gideon. I think that at the heart of it, it is Scheider's performance, but I think what's also mm -hmm. really interesting is this is a um, no-holds-barred 
uh, self-critical, like very critical look at oneself. Um, even in the end, uh, with the hard cut to the body bag, um, <laughs> like there's just absolutely no shame or remorse with how this character is made to look like, as we've said a couple times already, a piece of shit. Like, and you know, I will definitely talk more about eight and a half later but i just have to go ahead and immediately contrast it with eight and a half while guido gets that really sympathetic portrayal from fellini bob bob fossey is not at all concerned with making himself <laughs> look good um no. and so i just i think this is what i was getting at on our last episode mckenzie something of that portrayal in eight and a half felt shallow to me this feels so deep and authentic and on a much more personal note, I am somebody who has struggled very much my entire life with depression and anxiety. I've been through very long periods of not being able to get out of it. And what a lot of the times that is manifested in is a inferiority complex, like this like real, real true hatred of myself. Now, I have never uh, been as uh, as much of a philanderer or I've never been one at all. I've always been faithful to my romantic partners, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I've also like never used illicit substances to excess in the same manner. But like, I think there is something so relatable about the way in which he is showing all the demons without any rose tinted glasses mm -mm. to the viewer. Also, just like I have a lot of respect for somebody putting up all of their mental illnesses and all their skeletons up on the biggest possible stage possible like the silver screen in the 1970s where everybody went to the movies and saw what was on the marquee like everybody of ticket buying age would have seen all that jazz along with star wars in the late 70s like there was no escaping the portrait you were painting of yourself so like i just have a lot of admiration for this like for this for this film and the filmmaking but also like as well as you i love joe gideon because there's something so identifiable in him like i'm really trying my hardest to make this as coherent as possible but there <laughs> is just aside from all the glitz and glam and all that jazz <laughs> it's just such a deeply human story um only accentuated by how magnificent the filmmaking is yeah i mean we'll get into probably later about how i think just brilliantly directed and edited it is as well like just fossey just flexing as a filmmaker which is amazing as someone who i think comes from the theater but i have two like thoughts like one that i just want to say quick and then one that i think will take us into a conversation i really want to have but like i also yes i agree with everything you said like i'm just i respect the shit out of him kind of putting all of his shit out there and showing all of his demons and showing the worst parts of himself um i also like very rarely do we see films made about artistry and about artists from an artist talking about how like this industry kills you a little bit like you know as someone who like i've lost i hope to regain it someday but i've lost a lot of passion for creating theater and creating art and like for me that moment of the cut to the body bag with there's no business like show business every time i see that i'm like show business killed him like the, like this business is what killed him and it's what kills a lot of people and it it 
it, it sucks you dry a lot, especially if you are the type of person like Fosse who maybe like falls into these certain pitfalls um, from your trauma, from your mental illness, from a slew of things. And so I just find that also kind of a, a brave and interesting thing to say as someone who I think is revered as like one of the greatest choreographers to ever exist. Uh, and so it's just to see him say something that bold about theater and the kind of work that we do is is interesting. But also... What the, every time I watch this, I sit there and I go, what did the women in his life think about this? Because I, one, this is the most peak Bob Fosse bullshit ever of how much of a dick he was. Anne Ranking plays herself, basically. She was his longtime girlfriend for that portion of his life in which the film takes place. Um, I don't even like know what's the character's name, Kate. Like, but she's playing herself. Anne Ranking is playing Anne, basically. She had to audition multiple times to play the role that was just herself. The fact that she wanted it and Bob Fosse just didn't give it to her and they were like basically still dating, that's like the most like Bob Fosse should have ever heard in my life. Um, his daughter also appears in it. She's the girl who's stretching by the um the vending machine who like almost kicks the guy in the head and he's like, Can you move that over there? And she goes, Yeah, that's Bob Bossy's daughter. She was six. I was trying at the time. to place her. I didn't I didn't yeah. realize which one she was. Uh yeah, I had to do some research as well because I was like, where is she? Um and obviously like Gwen was still in his life. Uh famously so they had this and it's I think it's present in the film, they had this connection even after their marriage uh fell apart. And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like, I can't imagine what they must have thought about this film. Because again, as we t- as I harped on last week, unlike Eight and a Half, I think the women are in this film are given so much agency, so much of a voice. Like he does not pull punches with the way the women in his life talk about him and talk to him. And I think that like they are so compelling. I th- his daughter breaks my heart every single time in this movie with the "You got to stop, you know, screwing around, Daddy," and she just wants her dad to live so badly. And I can't imagine if I was feeling that about my dad and seeing my dad put that on screen, how that would feel. And I think him and Gwen's relationship is deeply, deeply complicated. But I think that Leland Palmer, which hilarious that she's named after a character from or I guess a character from Twin Peaks is probably named after her um I think she had to change her name probably because of that um but I think Leland Palmer gives the Gwen avatar I just call her Gwen the whole time I don't even like I just called it uh, but I think she gives her so much heart and nuance and depth because yes we are seeing her relationship to Joe and we are to Bob right we are seeing that there's this kind of tumultuous connection they have this daughter together so they have to be in each other's lives she has they're working on the show together so that's another reason why they have to be in each other's lives but i am so i love how they show also her kind of internal journey of trying to figure out what kind of artist she's going to be after this marriage trying to feel like she didn't waste her youth on this man she can still play 24 she can still play these roles that she never got to play maybe when she was with bob bossy and living in his spotlight and his shadow and Like, that is so compelling to me. Like, I think she is such a compelling and interesting character. Uh, And again, they don't really pull the punches with the way the women in his life speak to him. You know, Kate slash Anne, similarly, I think, gets to have a lot of honest things to say about it. I don't know. I just, like, I love his relationship to, like, the three main women in his lives. I think those are three phenomenal performances. And it's another thing that makes this, at least for me, better than eight and a half is because they get given so much agency, so much. And, and and every time I think I'm just like, I cannot imagine being Gwen or even Anne acting this on set and then watching it or being his daughter and seeing this and 
I just can't imagine what that must have felt like. You know what I mean? Seeing my own thoughts and feelings, or at least what he perceives my thoughts and feelings to be put onto a screen like that. I just, it's wild. It's just a wild movie to me. Yeah. It's sad. No, it wild is the best word because it is crazy to think about how, um, not to quote Nora Ephron, but like to Gideon, I'm sorry, to Fosse, everything is copy, obviously. Like mm. he's put, he's put himself in the film so fully, but by virtue of that, he is maybe with permission, but more than likely not also put all of the women in his life into this film whole cloth. Um, and yeah, I mean, what you're saying about eight and a half, I completely agree. Like, it's not just that the women are so, uh, fleshed out and like fully dimensional it's that their relationships with uh gideon like everyone's relationship with joe is given time mm -hmm. and it's given weight um specifically something you and i talked about really endearing joe to us is his relationship with his daughter you kind of were talking about like her moment in the final hallucination act where she's like you gotta stop screwing around daddy but you you texted me this and i i was actually uh close to sending you just the thought as well because i love this moment so much when she's asking for like a little brother or like yes. asking him to settle down because she's so concerned about his him. like health and just like his life um and you know and it manifests in her being like i'd like a little brother but i think what she's really saying is like i'd also like you not to die yeah which is like poor girl to have to be so aware of mortality at such a young age and like so mm -hmm. concerned with your dad's drinking and smoking and you know screwing around that you're not just getting to be an innocent child um th but yeah there's also just like little moments of color like this one of my favorite scenes where she's like i don't think lesbian scenes have any taste in film yes yeah, so he's like <laughs> all right i'll take it out then <laughs> like uh she's and then the little dance that they do afterwards it's was one of really, my favorite moments it's so good and i love that moment because it's like the one time you see joe feel genuine joy i think the entire yeah. movie and i was reading about fossey verdon um because they talk about the relation so natalie is his daughter's name in real life and they talk about apparently in that series her relationship with Anne. like she was really close to her dad's girlfriend uh and i was reading online that natalie was a producer for the fossey verdon series she was like a consultant obviously there to talk about her parents relationship and to just kind of be a consultant for the people creating the series and it was very important to her that they not ignore Anne. she was like it is really really important to me that you don't ignore her because she was like another mom to me and apparently like Anne and gwen ended up having a really lovely relationship because they had this mutual love of Natalie they had this mutual love of Bob's daughter and that they were kind of bonded over so even after Anne and him broke up in the late 70s I think they broke up near the end near this movie coming out um she was still in Natalie's life in a really important way and I think that that shows in this dance because you can see how much Anne like loves kind of being a stepmother to her and like uh, it's just really beautiful like again like we have this one sequence with them and you see that relationship so fully and so beautifully between Anne and um I forget the daughter's name in the film that's it's obviously not Natalie but Michelle Michelle yeah you see their relationship so beautifully in that scene uh, it, it's just like I just like yeah I love the relationships in this film they work so well together and yeah his daughter just breaks my heart every time and yeah. Clearly, he must have seen those feelings in his daughter. He must have seen that those fears she was feeling 
and put them on screen. And again, I can't imagine being a 16 year old and watching this movie and being like, oh my God, like if he knows this, then why is he still doing this? You know, it's almost the final nail in the coffin. Uh, no pun truly intended, uh, <laughs> but it's almost the final nail in the coffin of calling himself out is that he's so hyper aware of his own self and faults that he really has no excuse to keep on being the way he is, which literally, I mean, not to, not to go back to Rachel's silly little review, but like truly like, Hey man, Hey, my guy, come, come on. on. <laughs> um, which is like, it's, it, it's part of the magic of this movie. Mackenzie is that we're still so endeared to it. And like, honestly, it's truly one of the most like pleasurable, like depressing films I've ever watched. Um, it's fun it to is, watch. It's so, it's fun so to much watch. fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, we talk a lot about like these deeper things and everything. I wanted to talk, I think you do too. I want to talk a little bit about the filmmaking. You mm. talked about the editing, some of the choices that he makes, which again, it's just so crazy that this guy was one of the most renowned choreographers on Broadway, but also is probably one of the best cinematic storytellers we've ever been given in the United States. Um, but my favorite choice he makes in the film is to edit out all the noise in the read through of the script for erotica mm-hmm. or whatever that musical is titled Gonna i don't be, think it's yeah. actually called erotica <laughs> but um yeah he uh fossey edits out all the ambient noise and all the reading through of the actual script and you just focus in on him breaking a pencil his t- tapping of his toe and his fingernails on the desk and him breaking a pencil I just I think it's one of those moments as there are many throughout the film that really just go to highlight the stress and the really tunnel vision that Joe Gideon has without ever really realizing what's going on. Mm. We're so consumed by you know these little tiny ticks and stressors in the moment for him, but we're not sure exactly what he's thinking about. Um just know that he's like tuning everything else around him out because he can't be it's not that he can't be bothered, but it's like if he does think about it, he might collapse right there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, there's so many interesting directing moments. Like there was, I don't even remember the moment, but there's like a really cool, quick editing that where it's again the way he kind of uses the edit to to bring us into the frenetic depression of this man. There was like a quick. I think it's right after the um, he is talking about how he dated two women at once. And it's one of my favorite jokes in the film when she, he's saying she left this letter of like, I can't share you anymore. I have to leave. Uh, and then Angelique played by Jessica Lange, who we haven't talked about very early, early Jessica Lange performance. Uh, who's wonderful here. She's so young. It's wild to see her this young. Um, she says, how do you know she was talking about you? You know, insinuating maybe the woman didn't <laughs> want to share the other woman anymore. Yeah. And he puts his hand against the like thing and you see that Angelique is like crying. And, and then it does this quick kind of frenetic editing of like, Joe smoking then to the death monologue that obviously this comedian's death monologue is like kind of looming over the whole film as this sort of comedic but also intricate portrait of the stages of grief that will obviously become very important in the final act of the film it was just some some quick interesting editing there that I thought was really cool I also love just the directing of that first cheating scene with Victoria um, I don't even know if you can call it cheating because he doesn't really he's not monogamous in any way but he he's doing that kind of slow like these intimate intimate close-ups of victoria and joe and the camera is always moving it's just this very scintillating kind of slow and and i love that moment too because that's amazing roy scheider moment when she says like do you think i could be an actress and he's like nope 
nope like and he doesn't give a shit and neither does she they just they want to be near to power and they want this man who they deem as the man to be with and i don't I, I, like again just these and then obviously the final all of the performances in the third actor filmed so brilliantly and the blu-ray if you haven't checked this out i know it's a hard film to get your hands on i recommend just blind buying the blu-ray or just renting the blu-ray or you know borrowing it from your local library because the colors on this blu-ray are so beautiful and the, yeah the way he's directed that final act is just i it's mind-blowing i he's a really you know one of my favorite things about Fosse that i think is fun uh, is that he beat francis ford coppola for best director at the oscars yes. for the godfather <laughs> he won for cabaret yeah. and i think that is one of the i mean because obviously i think that the godfather has had more of a cultural impact in in, in the long run than cabaret but cabaret was the awards baby that night and they they killed it and Fosse, i think honestly deservedly so maybe in some in some circles won best director that night and i, I he's an amazing director it, it is wild to me that he was a theater guy and choreographer who I do think is maybe one of the greatest American directors we had for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen any of his other films, but I almost don't even care because it's like, if you made all that jazz, like I have full faith in your other, you know, works I have full faith yes. in you as a director. Like, I don't think, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, Mackenzie, but I don't think there's another film that we've covered and we've loved a lot of these films that we've talked about but that you and I would recommend more wholeheartedly, like owning mm-hmm. in your personal collection, seeking out if you haven't sought it out already. It's just, it's such a phenomenal piece of art. I wrote in my review to tease the show, like it might just be the best American movie ever made. Like I truly, truly feel that way. Like we're not big fans of the Godfather, you and I, uh, we don't. I like, I like the first one. I, I controversially am not a big fan of the second one, but yeah, I okay. like the first one a lot. Well, I am so sorry to speak for you. I am not a big fan of The Godfather. (laughs) uh, But also, before we hopped on this recording, we were talking about one of the first things we ever bonded over. We're both notoriously not the biggest fans of Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. Notoriously Um, so. I don't know. This is one of those things where I just think, like, the girls and gays get it also. (laughs) Uh, But, like, it is... I, I also think if you've ever struggled with mental illness in your life, you'll really understand what's going on here. Like it is, it's one of those pieces of art where it's like, if you, if you walk out of all that jazz and you don't get it, you've clearly never had depression or never struggled with self doubt. Um, if you watched, yeah, it's, if you watched tar and you were like, I think I'd have more fun if there was some musical numbers and uh, dream sequences in this watch all that jazz. that is so good i love that yes um well um you know we we're already running long but there are a couple wow. things i do want us to get to let's do it um before we end you touched on jessica uh lange lange lang you pronounce lang jessica lang um my american horror story queen i used to watch that a lot in high school so i was obsessed with i watched the i watched the first three seasons myself oh um, coven yes you were you were touching ah coven you were touching on her and that's probably my favorite choice he makes as a director i think these death dream sequences or these dream sequences with death which is what angelique obviously is is uh probably one of the most interesting and like for lack of a better SAT word, cool things <laughs> that is I've ever seen in movies. Like they just give it this otherworldly um, aesthetic and also just like tone. 
That's I, like I've never I've never seen uh like the spiritual world like manifested in such a grounded way. And it's it's also like a little like um have you ever seen Jim Henson's Labyrinth? Yeah, I love that movie. Oh my god, yeah. Okay, good. It's one of my favorites. Um I'm so glad. Um I used to be obsessed with the little worm. It's like, hello, come here yeah. for a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite yes. little boy ever. Um but yeah, no, it kind of it's that it's like that grounded magical realism. And there I go talking about magical realism again, but it is just such a unique interpretation of like hallucinatory afterlife like visions um what what were you gonna say oh well i i love the way that i love the production design in those scenes and to me i've always taken them as like that's his mind like that it's cluttered it's filled with the memories of his past right because that cabaret stuff happens in there his mother cooking it happens in there and then behind you see the cabaret like in my brain like whatever realm they are in is his mind. And I think he's trying to show how cluttered and jumbled and filled with just bullshit his mind is. And it's like, it's full of trash, but also these trash it's memories, right? These are all like the pieces that make up the man that we're seeing. And so I guess I've always envisioned it as being like a sort of artistic rendering of the inside of Joe's mind um, and his discussions with, with death, the angel of death happening within his own mind there. And that's how he kind of sees his own mind. I think is, I think it's a part of that self-hatred, but also maybe it's just like how Fosse felt like his brain felt on the inside, just kind of jumbled and, and filled to the brim with things he maybe didn't need. I I think that's brilliant. I love that. Um, I did one of those white eye things again. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no. I mean, I just love every sequence in there. I love uh, I love when uh, Leland Palmer has her little um, little routine with the doctors. All yes. the doctors treating Gideon. Um, oh, what else? I mean, also Jessica Lang. She just gives a phenomenal performance. She's so ethereal. Yeah, and like otherworldly as a you know i'm saying that word again but she just really does like bring a whole different vibe into a film that is already operating on so many different tones um i mean it's a funny movie it's a dark movie it's a sad movie and it's like as we've talked about it's kind of like a joyous movie in some in some spots i mean by the end of it like bye bye life i just think is one of the that whole sequences i think is just one of the greatest things ever put on film we should go ahead. Like, let's let's talk about that. I mean, I, and I was so struck by it on my second watch today because I watched it on Monday night and then we'll watch it again today because I just wanted to see it again. And I could watch that sequence over and over and over again forever. And I was really emotionally moved by it on the second watch because it's acceptance, right? This is the final stage of grief. That whole song is acceptance. And there is such a beautiful joy to that because it does feel like through this film... I think that's part of why the film is so compelling to me because it feels so personal more than maybe eight and a half does is because I can see through this film Fosse himself as a director working through his stages of grief. Like I can see Fosse as the director directing this film. I can feel that through the film. And so this number is, is the acceptance. Yes. Of Joe accepting his own death, but it feels like Fosse accepting his own death to me. Like, I it's my favorite moment I said it he hugs his daughter and he looks at the Gwen character and says now I don't have to I don't have to lie to you anymore like to me that feels like him like Fosse saying like if I died tomorrow this would have been enough 
if I died tomorrow, this film is what I wanted to leave saying. And there's something like, there's just a meta layer to that and it's palpable in that number. Uh, and obviously it's just an amazing song. It's amazingly choreographed. The production design is incredible. Ben Vereen kills it. It's just like, uh, uh, it's just as a production, it's amazing, but there's such a beautiful emotional depth to this, not for just the characters, but for the artist who created the film. And I think that's why it's so compelling. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I could have said any of it better myself. And I also (laughs) couldn't agree more. Um, I would add, you know, that like I, I I I love that moment you're talking about and it like does get me choked up when he says to her that, you know, I don't have to lie to you anymore and she gives him she's clearly choking up in that moment. There's um, love person, there. Like, There's so much yeah. it's and it's complicated and I don't think people are willing to talk about that sometimes is that love that can still exist between two people like that. Yeah, no, there's obviously so much going on underneath those eyes for both of them like there's that moment where he's choreographed erotica and he asks her because he re- he values her opinion over everybody else's in the room. But he's what also you think trying of? to tank it and he knew it would hurt her. Like he's such an asshole. <laughs> yeah. But what does she say? She says, it's the God best damn thing. It's the best damn thing you've ever choreographed. You fucking bastard. Like, um, yeah. And like, I mean, if that doesn't say love, I don't know what does in that relationship at least. <laughs> um, but no, the, the, the thing that really, uh, tugs on my emotional uh, heartstrings in that sequence, that end sequence. The you know amazing finale is um, when he's uh, it's you know it's like the beginning ish of it. It's when he's getting wheeled into the the operating room, and he he says, you know, I'm sorry. If I don't make it, I'm sorry for all the things I did to you, and if I do make it, I'm sorry for all the bad things I'm gonna do to you. Yeah. Um. That's, I mean, like, again, I, I don't, I don't want to, like, come off as identifying too much with him, but I think I've hinted at this in the past. I mean, it's probably just my, my, like, inferiority complex coming out live on air, but it's, <laughs> it's, um, I, I, I try so hard to not be this narcissistic asshole, and I, my greatest fear is that I still am mm. sometimes. Um, it is, it is that moment where it's, like, I've done terrible things in my life and I'm really sorry. Like it's just that moment where he's like, you know, to the woman I loved, I'm so sorry how I hurt you. And to the woman I currently love, I'm so sorry how I'm going to hurt you coming from Joe. Um, yeah, it's, and then it just goes in and is nonstop for the rest of the movie. And it is just probably one of the best musical numbers committed to film at least that i've ever seen i would agree granted i'm not as familiar with a far majority of them as you are probably you know (laughs) um but like it is i I think it's hard to describe uh what that final sequence in this film like is like you know again i'm just going to echo you from before in the episode mackenzie like if you have not seen this film go blind buy it get a copy of all that jazz if you do anything go to youtube and just watch bye bye life just watch that sequence even though it may not have the emotional impact of watching the film itself i mean you just have to see this number it's really really amazing
You better change your way of living. And if that ain't enough, she's right, Joe. You better listen. You better change the way you spread your stuff. Cause nobody wants you when you're old and gray. You better change your way today. You better change your way. Can you hear me, Joe? I'm talking to you. You gotta lay off the booze, Joe. X You better stop. You better change. You better stop. You better change. You better stop. You better change. You better stop and change your ways today. I said stop, change, stop, please. Cut. So Mackenzie, we've already really kind of talked about, um, you know, the parallels between the women in Eight and a Half and the women in All That Jazz. What else have we talked about? I kind of hinted at what did I hint at? I mean, the the film is a one to one of like a director who took his own life. Not well, wow, that's 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 that sounds bad. Yeah. A director who took the story of his life to screen. Sorry, I was I realized halfway through that sentence <laughs> no, I was I, not I, correct. I heard it too. Um, but yes, like a, a director putting his own life on screen through kind of an avatar of himself, that and and not necessarily hiding that this is himself. Um, obviously Fellini, you know, Guido is Fellini and obviously Joe is Fosse. Uh, I don't think either directors really hid that. Fosse especially was like, yep, this is, this is my life. Uh, he especially was not really hiding it. And again, said, you said last week, it said that eight and a half was a huge inspiration for this film. So I think that's the biggest, you know, one-to-one is that these are two, I would say, you know, great iconic directors who, decided to make a film about self-reflection and the way they view art, the way they're scared of death, the way they are, uh, they feel about the women in their lives, I think to differing uh, success, at least for the two of us. Yeah, no, I mean, Eight and a Half went on to inspire like a lot of different films, a lot of films that were also probably inevitably inspired by all that jazz, or at least, I'm sorry, influenced by all that jazz. Like, the filmmaker going in and making their autobiographical takedown of themselves is like nothing really new. It's not even really necessarily something Fellini pioneered, uh, but Fellini probably did it the best at first. Mm. Um, You know, in my mind, all that jazz is a a sheer triumph over um, eight and a half. I mean, I know you feel somewhat similarly, not nearly as down on eight and a half as I am, but I just think it is, I think eight and a half holds a lot of value for a lot of people in, many ways um for me it is the fact that we have all that jazz um two things i wanted to point out real quick were that and you pointed this out on last week's episode is like a lot of people love eight and a half because it's a film about filmmaking supposedly i actually think all that jazz is more a film about filmmaking without ever being really lauded as one like there's so much about cutting his film in this the stand-up which is based on the dustin hoffman a film he made the comedian in real life mm. um it's really about his tumultuous period editing that film and it's one-to-one from real life to the film like he had a really hard time editing that film he had a really hard time with that actor dustin hoffman and he had a really hard time accepting the negative response from the public in fact the sequence where fossey sorry the sequence where joe gideon <laughs> watches the critic on television rip his film a new one 
by all accounts from people who were witnesses to him watching that live on television, that's exactly what happened. Like there was a local New York city film critic who had a show on public television and she ripped his film, a new one, just like that. Um, so yeah, like I really appreciate how all that jazz is like so much more a film about filmmaking. Um, and also I said this, but I'll just reiterate it. Like they're both like kind of takedowns of the, of the self i just find all that jazz to be much more scathing and honest so you know again they're they're obviously like like what you said it's a one-to-one like they're essentially <laughs> the, the same the same yeah but i agree i i mean i know we harped on it a lot but i just think i'm this film resonates with me more i think Fosse is more willing to go to certain places uh than Fellini is and that's i think okay uh and i think that i appreciate that the women get more of a um life and inner life and a voice and opinions and i think it only deepens the character of joe whereas maybe with guido i don't really understand how the women in his life truly feel about him until i watch rob marshall's nine uh <laughs> to really resonate with that character um which i didn't mention but i did rewatch nine after we recorded and i was like yep i do like this better and i will just stop being ashamed of it so uh you know, vibes. But yeah, yeah, I think that I, I agree. They're, they're so similar, but I think all that jazz just works for me better because I just I personally find it to be the better film. Yeah. Well, after all that, jazz, do we even need to waste time with a final thoughts and star rating section? I mean, <laughs> we could do a one, two, three and both say <laughs> one, two, three, five Five stars stars. (laughs) (laughs) yes Um, a 10 banger if you will uh here on criterion connection yeah i mean not our first i mean vagabond but um was a 10 banger from us if i remember correctly so we had persona technically i didn't really rate it but i probably it's probably a five-star movie for me but yeah even some of our friends were very excited for us to cover all that jazz it's i think it's been I think it's been a our biggest episode yet to uh, almost steal Kev's vernacular. Well, I think that also I said it to somebody, maybe I forget where I said, it, but I have like the string of directors we have: Fellini, Fosse, going into next week. We have a string of like big iconic movies and directors that we've decided to take on, uh, and next week is no exception. I think we are we are continuing the thread of directors that people really really love, have a lot of opinions about. Uh, and films that are very iconic in our culture. But before we get there, I always try to skip ahead. I get too excited. I think we have some mail this week. Yes, we do. Speaking of how our friends were so excited, our friend Josh of the Film Explorers podcast wrote us a little email. Um, The subject line was uh, pretty straightforward. It's showtime, folks. Followed by (laughs) eight exclamation points. Um, Josh writes to us. He says, Hey guys, Josh here. I've been waiting for this week since the pod began. All That Jazz is one of my favorites in the collection. I want to call out the final number, which you know has probably been talked about to death on the episode, but I legitimately think it's one of the greatest musical numbers ever. This is uh, me editorializing here, Josh, but I would agree with you. (laughs) Josh continues by saying, just thinking about it gets me all emotional and existential, and my God, is Bob Fosse the greatest director of all time? Love you all and keep up the great work. P.S. What do I have to do or bribe to get a Wong Kar Wai film coming? Oh. Ooh. 
I don't know. I don't know, Josh. <laughs> um, well, we might have something in the works. Oh, yes, we might. Sorry. <laughs> I had to look we at might. our schedule. I was like, yep. I think, I think there's something down the road. Thank you so much, Josh, for that email. I'm sure we're going to cover a Wong Kar Wai eventually. But if y'all want to be like Josh and write in and tell us what you thought about all that jazz, eight and a half, or anything else we have covered or will covered, you can send us your emails and your voicemails 90 seconds or under to thecriterionconnection at gmail.com, and we will read or play them on the show. And now I'm finally, and now I was skipping ahead earlier. I got too eager, and I think you all will find out why I got too eager when Ian reveals their next fresh pick. Ian, take it away. Cowboy, take me away. (laughs) (laughs) Mackenzie. Yes. I am very excited to take you back just a little bit further than the 1970s. And we are going back to the 1960s with a film, which I will read its synopsis for from Letterboxd, the hotline suspense comedy. After the insane General Jack D. Ripper initiates a nuclear strike on the Soviet Union, a war room full of politicians generals and a russian diplomat all frantically try to stop a nuclear strike in stanley kubrick's dr strangelove or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb i'm very excited to take this journey with you yeah i mean we were talking about kubrick earlier he loves all that jazz so he also feels kind of it's not connecting technically but kind of a bit of a little uh you know, emotional connection from, from Fosse to Kubrick here. Yeah. I've noticed we started to, if not deliberately do that, which we truly have not, but we've started to notice just little tiny things tying all of our films together through the greater tapestry of cinema. Well, <laughs> I didn't mention this during our main discussion, but I kept on thinking of the red shoes during our discussion yeah. on all that jazz. You know, you were talking a little bit about, how art destroys you mm-hmm. and i mean this is not a central theme of the red shoes but i didn't want to get us off track but yeah i i love this we're just finding all these little things even if they're not strictly the double feature that we're crafting that connect these films to one another i love it well mackenzie do you have anything else i don't got nothing else i'm excited to talk about kubrick especially after we famously just said 20 minutes ago we did not like 2001 and we were going to get review bombed by kubrick stands uh stay tuned kubrick fans maybe next week we'll see yeah this one may not be as low on the star meter (laughs) as uh as you might think anyway i'm very excited about that as well i'm very excited to talk 2000 oh i'm very excited to talk (gasps) about your strange love with you mackenzie uh, as of right now, there's no chance of us covering 2001 because Not we have tied ourselves to a silly little premise of only covering films in one boutique Blu-ray collection. Anyway, <laughs> needless to say, I'm very excited. And Mackenzie, until then. See you next week on The Criterion Connection. I think I'm gonna die. Sweet caress, hello, and 
happiness. I feel like I could die. I bye bye your life goodbye. Bye bye my life goodbye. I bye bye your life goodbye. Two, three, four, five, six. of Anne Ranking, Leland Palmer, and Ben Vereen. All that jazz pushes the musical genre to personal depths and virtuosic... And virtuosic oh my god! I'm sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to edit that. Do you want me to do it the whole thing again? I feel so bad. No, don't worry about it. Here, I'll probably be able to make it sound fine. You do what you want. Virtuosic aesthetic heights. All why don't that you just, jazz. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Lord. That was good. Uh, why don't you just do the last sentence again? I'm so sorry no, that half of it. these words I can't say for some reason. <laughs> and then you. now Jasper is like ah, on me and I'm like, oh my God, this is the worst day of my life. Bubba, um, hold on. Sir, you, come on, let me take this fucking cat out. Come on, Bubba. <laughs> <laughs> that was